Just be curious to know if you can see yourself as clear as someone who has had you on his mind. Hi, I'm Chris, the volunteer coordinator at WERU. I'd like you to make WERU part of your New Year's resolution and attend the volunteer orientation on Thursday, January 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. right here at the station in East Orland. There still is time to sign up by calling 469-6600 or sending an email to info at weru.org. If you are interested in becoming a music programmer, public affairs producer, committee member, work in the music library, or to get involved in some other way, then this is for you. Or if you're just curious about how WERU ticks, then this is how you can learn more. So that's Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. at WERU in East Orland. What a great addition to your life in 2011. Call 469-6600 to sign up. Thank you. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in Holden. Fields Pond has a year-round nature store, lake access, and offers educational programs about habitat conservation for people of all ages. More information at mainaudubon.org or 989-2591. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Early peoples kept track of the past in stories and perhaps in cave paintings. We, too, tell stories. We keep photographs. We collect artifacts from bygone days. But our local historical societies and museums are using some great new strategies to help us celebrate our past and add to our sense of place. And this morning on Talk of the Towns, we'll talk about celebrating local history. And our guests in the studio can help us with that topic. Tim Garrity is with us. He's the director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Welcome, Tim. Good morning, Ron. We also have Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, who is director of the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor. Welcome to you, Cinnamon. Good morning. And Bill Horner is with us. Bill is a local amateur historian. I think that's the good title for you. Perfect. 
Good. Thanks, Ron. Thanks to all of you for being with us. And a little bit later, we'll talk with uh, Larissa uh, Bigu-Picard of the Maine Historical Society. Um, you can participate at any time in this uh, radio uh, dialogue by calling one 866 6259378 as we um, do every um, twice a month on Talk of the Towns. Well, I'd like each of our guests to introduce themselves a little bit, and then we'll kind of um, talk more about how we celebrate local history and um, start with Tim Garrity. Tim, you've come to the directorship of the Mount Desert Island Island Historical Society, um, but you kind of took a different turn to get there. Yeah, I, uh, I think if I were to write an autobiography, it would be uh, titled Diary of a Slow Learner. <laughs> I've uh, taken a fairly roundabout route to uh, pursue a lifelong interest in history. I think one of my earliest childhood memories is uh, being fascinated with the National Geographic mm-hmm. magazine of July 1963, which was the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg, and just being taken by topics like that all my life. And uh, my life took me uh, through a 25-year career in healthcare administration and uh, came to a point a couple of years ago where I wanted to pursue some other interests. And I uh, started working on a master's degree in history at the University of Maine. I took a job uh, last summer as a park ranger in Acadia National Park. And um, that really helped me uh, appreciate both the natural and cultural history around us. And uh, from there, I've started uh, uh, a new opportunity came up at the Historical Society, and I've been there for the last five months. Great. So uh, here we have a, in, in, in this role, we have a chance to try to create a better understanding of the world around us and its history. Great. And we'll come back to an event that you helped um, um, plan and carry out um, called Celebrate 250, um, Mount Desert Island um, settlement by um, folks from Massachusetts 250 years ago this, right. this year. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Cinnamon uh, Catlin Legutko, um, director of the Abbey Museum, a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, always happy to talk about it because I was a, a kid of museums, raised by parents who were in love with museums. Our vacations revolved around them. So uh, as I decided what to be, it was obvious. I wanted to work in museums and pursued an undergraduate degree in art history and anthropology and a graduate degree in museum studies and anthropology. So um, I came to the Abbey just over a year ago. It's, uh, yeah. June 1st, 2009, Mm -hmm. not been very long, Um, from Indiana, where I was the director of the General Lou Wallace Study and Museum um, for many years, and that's a National Historic Landmark site, and before that I had been in another county museum. So I've worked in a variety of formats, um, but I'm very excited about the Abbey, especially because it's the one I had always hoped for the one that the anthropology degrees were leading to. Mm. Um, So I'm new to the island and new to the uh, area and loving Maine. Great. Well, glad you could be with us today. Um, Bill, you share with Tim a background in health, but this common interest in history, how did that get started? Well, I think um, it actually got started with a painting that's on uh, our wall in our house, uh, and it portrays a... um, schooner, uh, but there was a lot of mythology associated with it in terms of who owned it. It was attributed to my great-great-grandfather, Daniel Deasy, who came from Ireland originally, but settled in Prospect Harbor. But um, similar to problems you encounter in surgery, <laughs> um, it became a point of 
intense investigation on my part, and what I uncovered uh, really got me into an intense interest in not only personal family history, but history of the area, and how you go about finding these uh, resources that are so uh, critically important in producing writing. I think that's the other thing, is that during my uh, surgical career, uh, I may have felt that um, I didn't really write scientifically to the extent that I hoped that I might. Uh, but now with retirement some three years ago, I'm really pretty excited about the prospect of uh, changing tax, if you will, mm -hmm. and uh, getting into history uh, and writing about it. So what did you find out about this painting that's on your wall? Well, it turned out that um, this vessel um, was registered at the Essex Shipbuilding Museum down in Massachusetts. Turns out that the uh, town of Essex, which uh, incidentally is in the old uh, parish of Chebacco, um, that's another story. <laughs> uh, turns out that some 4,000 schooners were uh, built over the course of the years, and they supplied uh, much of the uh, fleet of fishing vessels to Gloucester. Mm. Grand bankers, sharpshooters, and it turned out that this uh, Captain Daniel D.C., at the age of 18 or 20, was a master mariner and had uh, sailed extensively from Gloucester down as far as Honduras in the early banana trade. Mm. Uh, but all of that took me to the Fogler Library, um, took me down to the New England Genealogical and Historical Society in Boston for Babson family records. It turned out this was a Babson vessel. Mm. And along that, um, there were some golden moments, for example, when I went to the Gloucester Ships Registry down in Cape Ann and found all of the pieces that tied the vessel to my great-grandfather together. That's great. Yeah, That's it's a great. wonderful moment when you find something like that. Yeah. Very exciting. Well, Tim, some of your work started with a painting, too. Jonathan Fisher's painting of Blue Hill. Yeah, my, my wife Lynn and I own a home in, in Blue Hill and uh, lived there for quite a while before I realized that one of Maine's earliest landscapes paintings was taken from the vantage point of our home in Blue Hill. It's mm -hmm. up on Greens Hill, and it looks over the valley of, of Blue Hill across to Jonathan Fisher's home that he built around 1796. And I, uh, I took a course at the College of the Atlantic, uh, Global Information Systems, and what I did with a project was to look at this landscape, which of course is oriented vertically, and tilted it in a mm. map form so that you could mm. look at it horizontally and checked the features that, uh, uh, that Jonathan Fisher painted based on the technology of the day in 1824, uh, camera obscura, so that mm. this painting is photographic in its accuracy. And uh, really started to look into the painting and see what it said and, and some of its uh, messages for us today in, in that it depicts this emerging market town with a coast and several ships under construction in the harbor and uh, fields that have recent, recently been cleared so that the stumps are still in them. And also seeing it, uh, looking at uh, Fisher, looking at the work of his hands that over his 40 years in Blue Hill, uh, he had succeeded in transitioning that community from wilderness to a commercial center. 
and also reading into some of his religious values and spiritual values that in the distance there's the congregational church that he was one of the earliest members and in the middle distance is the Baptist church which was established in the early 19th century and represented a breakaway from the congregational church and you know must have been a a little painful for him to look at to see that rending of the of the community and also to understand that uh, the his idea of a beautiful landscape is very different from ours if we stand on that porch and look out over that view we'll turn a little bit towards the sea and we'll look at the blue water of blue hill bay and the mountains of acadia in the distance he standing from the same landscape looked out at what he thought was beautiful the bustling town of Blue Hill and all the houses under construction. Our, uh, many of our ideas have changed, and, and just looking at how he looked at the same view, you can really see how our approach to uh, our, our appreciation of what's around us has, has changed quite mm-hmm. a bit also. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you're, you're both your stories and the event that you just came off, all three of you were participating in an event last night um, called Celebrate 250. Maybe you could um, start, Tim, tell us a little bit about that event, and then we can begin to say, well, how do all of these kind of things come together? The individual, you know, uh, research by an individual, the historical society, and I think the really special um, added piece that the Abbey added last night um, to talk about our Native American um, history here as well. Tim, why don't you get us started about 250? Sure. Uh, Celebrate 250 marks the 250th anniversary of Abraham Soames and James Richardson's arrival at Mount Desert Island. And uh, about a a little over a year ago, some folks at the Mount Desert Island Historical Society were starting to understand this anniversary was coming up and started to plan ahead and start to look at ways that we could mark that anniversary and what's the appropriate way to to celebrate that. And uh, what was decided was to use it as an opportunity to pull organizations from throughout our area, particularly Mount Desert Island, together to uh, use it as an opportunity to increase our appreciation of local history and to use it as a uh, place where people could express their views of local history in all the creative ways that we could imagine. So we've pulled together a a group uh, from A to the end of the alphabet, from the Abbey Museum to the Wendell Gilley Museum, and uh, a lot of places in between, Acadia National Park, the Jessup Memorial Library, uh, over 20 organizations are actively participating at a very early stage, and we're hoping many more will join us. Last night, we had our kickoff event at Mount Desert Island High School, over 300 people in attendance for a traditional chowder supper and variety show. And uh, the variety show included... Uh, acts recreating a conversation between uh, Abraham Soames and James Richardson. And Abraham is here with us. And Abraham is here. (laughs) Bill, what what did you learn about kind of digging into Abraham Soames' life and and, and and why did you choose the, the, um, uh, what was it? The Oath of Allegiance to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yeah, why did you choose that as a a focal point? Well, uh, for one thing, the year of 1789 was useful in terms of the fact that related to uh, 1761 when I built my pitch there at the head of the river. Yes, thank, thank we you, Abraham. Call right. it the same. <laughs> okay. Back in character. We're up at the head of the river. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gave us a perspective 
to look back on 15 or whatever the sum is there, 18 years right. of what had happened. Uh, also, uh, it's an important document because all of the heads of household uh, at, uh, existing at that time were required to sign that document. Mm -hmm. So it gives us, um, from a we'd, genealogical we'd had, perspective... We'd had the war with England, and, and basically we're saying, you better be with us now. Basically, is that it? Well, yeah. And with Massachusetts. And not, and not only the king and government of Great Britain, but any other foreign power, okay. for that matter. Right. Right. It was a statement, an incredible statement of independence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... Um, also, the choice of words, the whole kind mm. of language mm. that was involved in that oath uh, really brings back much of the dialogue of the time that was carried out among people. You really sort of had a sense you were there. But I think, for me personally, it brings us back to Gloucester. These are Gloucestermen. Mm -hmm. There were so many Gloucester families, uh, not only Richardson's and Soames's, but Babson's, who ultimately settled up in this area. And of course, um, the, the wonderful image for me is Abraham Soames sailing up the river mm. in his Chibaco. Mm -hmm. uh, Chibaco is a sort of pre-schooner uh, design of, of double-ended uh, working uh, double-masted vessel, interesting little vessel. Mm -hmm. Cinnamon, um, tell us a little bit about how you, as, as director of the Abbey Museum, helped participate in this and then uh, Rainey's wonderful little talk. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Sure, and I also want to add to what Bill just said about the, the oath that was talked about last night. What was really telling about it is that the same people who signed that are the names that you find on the island still. Mm -hmm. If you looked through a phone book today, you'd see those names. And I think that's what's so magical, quite frankly, about history is that it is constant mm -hmm. and that you find threads throughout it. And I thought that was a very telling yes. moment as well. But yes, the Abbey got involved at the very early stages um, as a partner in this collaboration. And we wanted to make sure in the conversations that it wasn't the start of the island's history. It was a mark in time. And so who best to help with that but the Abbey Museum? Um, our mission is to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki Nations with every visit, whether that's inside the museum or in your classroom or on the street. It's every visit you make. We want to help you learn something more. So as part of last night's event, we um, had a segment presented by our Curator of Education, Rainy Bench, about what Native life was like on the island. And I think a lot of people learned something new. They didn't realize that it wasn't a seasonal retreat away from the island based on food ways. It was a year-round existence and that there was a lot of synergy between the people sailing up the river. I can't say the main accent quite right yet. <laughs> but um, You're getting there. I'm getting there. Mm -hmm. Sailing up and, and uh, setting up camp, there was a great relationship that endured for for a few many years, so much so that that's going to be the focus of our exhibition this year, Indians and Rusticators, um, which focuses on Wabanakis and the summer people from the 1840s to the 1920s, and to talk about that really formal relationship of economic survival, cultural dependence, as well as tourist economy and an attraction by having Wabnakis mm -hmm. um, in the mix. So we have stayed part of this collaboration. We look forward to it. I'm personally serving on a subcommittee, helping all the web components to get out there and the messaging, and we're thrilled by it. And I think it's mm -hmm. a great um, example of how the island works together and will continue to work together for shared goals. I want to come back to you and ask a little bit more about Rainey's description of how uh, Native Americans and, and the white settlers basically viewed land. 
um, mm. because I think that was a most telling piece in her remark. But I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Um, as always, we're, it's a call-in program. You can participate at any time by giving us a call at one 866 625 Seven, eight. In the studio with us are Cinnamon Catlin Legutko, who is the director of the Abbey Museum, Bill Horner, a local um, historian, and Tim Garrity, director of the Mott Desert Island Historical Society. So, Cinnamon, a little bit about that difference in, in how people um, of different cultures viewed land and land ownership. Thanks. Um, it, of course, varies regionally, but in the instance described last night during the event on the island where you did find tension is when treaties were signed or um, agreements were signed regarding land. And when the white settler would sign this agreement, it would be in their mind the right to take land and own it and set up shop or what have you. But for the native perspective, it was a cultural difference. And the understanding of land was completely different. It's a, it's a common use. It's a shared use. No one really owns land because you don't inherently have the right to own it from that cultural perspective. So when they signed the documents, they were believing that they were agreeing to share it (laughs) and to not be um, in conflict. So as they would move away through the season and um, subsist somewhere else in Maine or along the coast and then move back seasonally, they would find that the land they had used had changed and fences were up and homes were built and... um, they were not allowed and they were trespassing. So you can imagine the conflict. It's a, a very base level cultural misunderstanding about that. That goes back land. to Jonathan Fisher's view of what was perfect. Exactly. What was perfect yeah. was a settled landscape right. with fences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. And uh, the whole idea of uh, wilderness ha- went back to a biblical understanding of that world mm-hmm. as a, a, of the wilderness as a wasteland mm-hmm. or, or desert. Mm. and uh, that to not improve it in the European style was to make to be wasteful of it. And mm-hmm. therefore, if it wasn't being used as uh, Europeans understood it should be, then it should be appropriated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, uh, staying with you for a moment, give us a little bit of background on the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. When did it start, and, and what are some of the things that, uh, that are its hallmarks so far? Well, the uh, Mount Desert Island Historical Society was established in 1931 and is uh, uh, many people who visit the island know it best by the beautiful arched bridge in Somesville and the little selectman's building that was constructed uh, in 1789 and mm-hmm. has been there since serving as the selectman's office, a cobbler shop. Uh, the Mount Desert Island Historical Society also operates the old schoolhouse museum, the, the, the yellow schoolhouse that's on the uh, Route 198 on, on the road to uh, Northeast Harbor. That was the sound schoolhouse that was built in 1892 and served as a one-room schoolhouse for the now disappeared village of sound until 1926. But uh, around the turn of the current century, the town of Mount Desert gave that building to the Historical Society with the understanding that it would be uh, reconstructed and uh, uh, preserved as a place to keep the island's history. And that's what we're, that's what we do. We have the uh, completely restored one-room schoolhouse. That's a, uh, a setting for uh, meetings, reconstruction, uh, or a reenactment of uh, school days. We have third graders in to uh, recreate uh, what a day in a one-room schoolhouse might have been like. We use it as a place for exhibits on island history, and we also have storage facilities so that we can protect 
the historical resources of the island in a temperature and humidity controlled environment and also with the ability to uh, catalog that so that we know what we're we know what we're keeping mm -hmm. so we we see our mission as to preserve islands history and to draw people in to enjoy it and pre uh, use history as a place where people can um, build uh, community and express their own uh, creative uh, 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 their own creative impulses to focus on history of all different kinds of things. We've mm -hmm. done everything from the history of shoes to hooked rugs to Civil War. Uh, a, a wide range is... Uh, uh, granite. Uh, granite's there granite, too. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. So there's all kinds of uh, different histories that we're, that we're involved in. Right. And what's the relationship between both of your um, organizations, uh, Cinnamon and, and Tim, with um, what we might call town historical societies? And they, you know, most towns in Maine have some kind of historical society that might not have a facility, but they're certainly engaged in, in preserving and celebrating local history. Tim, you want to start? And then Cinnamon, you might have some comments. Well, I, I think all of us uh, that have done uh, historical research very quickly to discover that no one organization has all the information that mm. you need in order to do a proper mm. uh, history. Mm -hmm. uh, I've recently been working on a study of a Civil War soldier named John M. Gilly and uh, have used ledgers from the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, uh, records kept at the National Archives, uh, receipts and tax records kept at the town of Mount Desert offices books published by the director of the Tremont Historical Society, newspapers kept at local libraries, uh, records and unpublished manuscripts at the Northeast Harbor Library. So anybody who is trying to conduct a research of the island uh, is going to have to cross uh, lines of different organizations. And one of the things that we see as very important is for those organizations to help that process and uh, to find ways to collaborate together and create a, a greater appreciation of the island and recognize that history is one of the island's resources, just like the mountains of Acadia. Mm. And uh, if we can help people appreciate that history more, then that's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. Cinnamon, you've got uh, just a, a wonderful new facility, relatively new in the, in the Abbey's history. Um, maybe you could describe, walk us through um, that facility and, and what you're doing in the facility. And you've got another kind of a, um, the original facility was um, at Sir Demont. So talk a little bit about some of those aspects and how those relate to this notion of celebrating local history. Well, this year is very auspicious for us, too, because this is our 10th year in downtown Bar Harbor. So we'll be celebrating on top of the celebration, um, that success. And our origins, of course, were in Acadia National Park at the Sertimont facility, which is one of the last trailside museums in the nation in mm. the park system. The other one, I believe, is in Death Valley. Mm. So that in itself makes it a gem. Um, and it was formed, the organization was formed in 1927, and then Sertimont, that facility, opened in 28. Um, because of the good works of Dr. Abbey, who had a focus on the archaeological record. And it was um, primarily an archaeologically focused museum for many, many decades. And in the late 90s, or yes, in the late 90s or so, there was a great momentum building for needing to tell the whole story, connect the past to the present, and tell the, the full story of the Wabanaki and cultural um, concerns, um, contemporary art, and so forth. So this great movement happened 
to raise the funds to make downtown happen right in the middle of a booming um, tourist economy. And so we're moving into this 10th year and looking back and realizing that it's a beautiful facility where there are quiet places of reflection as well as um, innovative and engaging exhibitions. We have a changing exhibition schedule where we'll change out two to three times a year a show. We have been able to grow our collections to about 50,000 items. Some of those are baskets. Some of those are archaeological finds. Um, we have an active field school that we produce every summer that continues the research. Um, we focus in the Frenchman Bay area, um, and it's very well attended. Um, in addition to that, we have a, a huge menu of programming that may be public where you could come and participate in a workshop led by a native artist, basket maker, or birch bark carver, or what have you. You can also come in to see demonstrations if you want to just interact that way. You can also come and do hands-on crafts and family-oriented activities. And then we have another component to our education where we go into classrooms. Um, Ten years ago, interestingly enough, the same time the Abbey opened, the Wabanaki Initiative passed, which is a um, state mandate to have um, education at every classroom level about the Wabanaki, and the Abbey was able to step up and really provide content that teachers rely on. And so in addition to us going into classrooms or classrooms coming to us, we um, produce teachers' institutes where we're teaching the teachers mm. about how to deliver the, the mandates that they have to meet. Um, we're getting bigger and bigger every day. We're looking at distance learning to really get to the further regions of the state. Um, we, we've traveled to all new territories in the last year, um, and we continue on that trend. Mm. Um, so we feel like while we have great origin story on the island, we truly have become a statewide institution, and we're really focused on that impact we can have as well. Mm. We're going to talk a few minutes with Larissa Vigu-Picard of the Maine Historical Society, so we'll get a, another statewide um, direct uh, perspective in a minute. Bill, how have you used local historical societies as a, as a springboard for some of your interests in, in, in research? Uh, approximately two years ago, I was uh, delivered a challenge by my good friend Jack Russell. Mm. Uh, in this context, uh, I had discovered that Captain Deasy's son uh, was the first attorney in the town of Bar Harbor, settling there uh, in his office in 1884, which was pretty much the beginning of the era of conversion from rusticator staying in a small local home or a small hotel to the onset of the cottagers. And a lot of the ideas that um, came about at that time, principally those of the Hancock County trustees for public reservations, acquiring lands, Acadia National Park. And so this uh, great-grandfather uh, was involved as a local attorney working with the state legislature and all of the um, title searches that were required in that entire process. And to me, it was a fascinating uh, kind of confluence of skilled local people uh, and people from away, if you will, who brought not only great wealth, but great perspective and knowledge and influence at the same time. And so Jack challenged me to um, wrap up my research and put the pen to the page. And so I did so, um, 
And uh, there was an article published in Chibaco, which is the annual periodical of the Mountain Sword Island Historical Society. Based on that experience, uh, it became clear that there is a rich deposit of historical resource in this area. Mm. Um, and particularly, my focus obviously was on the Mount Desert Island. Um, but I also remember the hours and hours and hours spent in front of a microfiche machine at mm -hmm. the library, uh, talking to people who had private collections and realizing that at the end of the day, uh, history begins in our own basements and attics. That all of us, if you consider it from the grassroots level, is a historian, potentially, a writer, potentially. And so the great question became, how can we facilitate access uh, to these multiple resources? As Tim has, man uh, has mentioned, we have libraries, we have historical societies, and then we have private collections. How do we bring about a uniform approach to accessing um, all of that v so valuable information? Mm. And we're certainly seeing the technology changing, so that's, that, that vision that you have is much more possible than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah. Cinnamon? Well, and I would just add, too, that with the World Wide Web and all those great improvements, it's it's leveled the playing field for history. So it becomes accessible by everyone at any time. And so often museums or historical societies have felt closed to people because they couldn't get there during the work day or they couldn't do this and they didn't feel like their history was theirs. And I think that's the greatest excitement to me right now in the world of history is that people are realizing it's their history. It really is. And they mm. can own it, be part of it. And then as a result, they take care of it. Well, we, we've certainly heard the phrase that um, history is written by the victors <laughs> of, right. of whatever conflict is going on. And what you're saying is, well, yes, and now we can do our own research. We can ask those questions about our own families and, 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 and discover mm -hmm. um, our own history. One yep. of the things that uh, I'm seeing is that historians have a history also. Mm -hmm. I came across a research the other day that's uh, a compendium of historical archives that was done in 1938, mm -hmm. uh, a, a product of the Works Pro uh, Projects mm -hmm. Administration during the Depression. And it was intended to put unemployed historians to work, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. creating a comprehensive assessment of all the historical resources on the island. So that was 1938, and it lets us look 80, uh, for, uh, it allows us to take a step 80 years back and see what historians had then and see if we can recover some of those uh, historical archives that are scattered throughout the island. And they, they face the same thing then with their technology, but a very thorough approach, a, mm. a really admirable effort. And we can build on the work of other historians mm. and see how that, uh, uh, what we can add with our new technology and our new interests now. Well, standing on the shoulders of others, that, that notion yeah, that yeah. we take advantage of that. Um, just want to remind listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're celebrating local history today. And uh, in the studio with us, we have Tim Garrity, who is the director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko of the Abbey Museum, and Bill Horner, a local amateur. But I don't know if you, uh, amateur, you know, you're writing, so 
Maybe it's you're a professional. Semi, semi-amateur. Semi-pro. Semi-pro. <laughs> That's it. And now we're joined by Larissa Vigu-Picard of the Maine Historical Society by phone. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Larissa. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a little bit to this conversation, so you've, you've uh, kind of seen where we've gone so far. Give us a little bit of background about yourself, how you got involved in, in uh, historical work, and um, then a, a kind of a, um, a one-minute description of the Maine Historical Society. Sure. Um, I've, been, uh, I've been here at Maine Historical. Um, it'll be a couple of years in May. Uh, I grew up in Maine. I left for about 15 years, but like a lot of people, was drawn back to the state um, several years ago and um, have had a, a professional career in the humanities and so um, was very happy to end up uh, here at a great cultural institution um, working statewide. And um, Maine Historical has been around since 1822. It's the third oldest a historical society in the country um, after Massachusetts. Uh, uh, that's 1791 in New York um, was the second in 1804. So we're pretty old and pretty proud of that fact. Um, the mission, you know, is to preserve the heritage and history of Maine, the stories of Maine people, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the traditions of Maine communities, uh, and essentially record Maine's place in a changing world. Uh, and for those folks who don't know, we're, we're located in Portland, and one of our highlights is we, uh, we have a, a, a campus. We call it a campus because we have three different buildings here on Congress Street, um, one of which is the Longfellow House. Um, and that was, of course, the home of um, both the Wadsworth family and Longfellow family, and Henry Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, lived here as a boy um, and then went off to live elsewhere and, and, of course, become internationally famous, but he did live here as a, as a child. Um, we have the newly renovated Brown Library, which, if people haven't been into, is just beautiful and a beautiful place not only to do research, genealogical research and other types of research on Maine history, but just to come in and um, pull a, a book a, about Maine history off the shelf and sit um, in, the, in the lounge or one, uh, one of the beautiful long tables and read. Um, and then the, the museum, um, the on-site museum uh, with our current uh, Zoom-in exhibit, which is a fabulous exhibit about Maine Memory Network, which I'll talk about in a minute, and our great museum shop, and then we have the administrative offices. So it's actually a pretty big facility here. Um, and tell and us a little bit about the, the um, main memory network and the community heritage project that you're I, involved yes. in. Yes. We, we've always had a lot of programming, um, and we have on-site lectures, and we have uh, you know activities throughout the year. We have a whole education department here where we work with schools, um, and sort of make use of the Longfellow House and the history and all of that. But Main Memory, uh, Main Memory started about a decade ago, and that's been the basis of a lot of community outreach um, throughout the state. It is a truly statewide, um, statewide uh, um, outreach thing for us. It's it's wonderful. It's a digital museum. It is. Um, it is uh, mainmemory.net. Um, if people don't haven't been there, it's it's it, they should bookmark it and go. It's 
um, has 20,000, about 20,000 historical items from all over the state in it, not just things from our own collection, but from contributing partners all over Maine. Uh, the whole point when we began it was not, to, was not just to put stuff from our collection on it, but to empower organizations um, from all over, historical societies, museums, libraries, even, you know, hospitals, churches, schools, any, any organization with historical collections um, to, to be able to digitize their collections and put them online themselves and manage those, account, those accounts themselves. And it's completely free, um, and they, we train them to do it, and they can put, put their stuff up. <clears throat> excuse me, put their stuff up there, catalog it, uh, and manage it up there. Um, and then there's a, a huge amount of interpretive material up there as well, online essays, and we have a wonderful um, illustrated guide to Maine history called Maine History Online up there, uh, and a huge number of community websites, which is, um, you mentioned Maine Community Heritage Project, which is what I was brought on um, to work on. Um, that was a federally funded project uh, from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And that allowed us to uh, build upon some early work um, that was really about bringing local historical societies and schools together um, to digitize local history and research local history. And in fact, um, MDI was a very early pilot um, project. And if folks go to the mainmemory.net site, they can see Maine Community Heritage Project and click on that link and go to the MCHP page right now and scroll down to the bottom and see the MDI site, which is a great site. There are um, 19 Maine Community Heritage Project sites now. We have since um, gotten yet another Institute of Museum and Library Services grant uh, to come out with a whole brand new grant program, which um, we're going to be rolling out in the in the coming weeks. So it's pretty exciting um, to have all these opportunities for communities to to work with us and do local history projects. And if you could give us a preview of of the, some of the things that a local historical society might take advantage of uh, through your your new program, that would be really great. Sure. Um, we're going to have uh, <clears throat> a variety of opportunities. When we did the Maine Community Heritage Project, basically what a community could do was a very intensive year-long project. Um, and they, they had to have uh, at least three organizations working together, historical society, library, school. They worked for a year. They had to digitize up to about 150 items. They had to do, they had to create online exhibits. They had to build a website. It was very, very intensive. It was wonderful work. But what we realized was we had a lot of smaller groups throughout the state, small little local historical societies who wanted to do who didn't have the capacity to do these great big huge projects and wanted to bite off smaller chunks. And so this new program, what we've done is kind of break, uh, taken that big model and, and, and um, we've broken it into smaller chunks. So we're going to have uh, a, a grant available for folks or teams who just want to digitize collections, and that'll be um, a grant of up to $750. And then a category who um, 
for organizations or teams who want to digitize collections and just build an online exhibit. And that's a grant of up to about 1250. And then we'll have some slots for for teams who do want to do that big website building year-long project, and that'll be a grant category of up to 3,000. But I also want to stress that any group, any organization with a historical collection at any time can become a contributing partner of main memory, um, setting aside the grants for a moment, that, that any organization out there who wants to digitize their collections, who wants a way to provide more access to their collections. Uh, Main Memory is a fabulous way to do it. Um, and it's completely free. And we do, you know, we provide the training. It's very, very easy to sign up. Um, and, you know, that can happen at any time. So, so the, Larissa, this is in some ways um, part of the answer to, to Bill's um, question of how do we um, uh, um, make the playing field level for anybody yes. that's interested in, in, in doing their own historical research to have that, that online source. That's right. That's right. It's, it's going from, you know, having a, a historical society that might be open, you know, one or two days a week only in the summer to suddenly having, um, you know, 50, 100, 150 items digitized on main memory for the entire world to see. And our standards are are high in terms of how we require people to, you know, the, the file size we require people to scan at and our cataloging record. But, um, you know, we, we really require high quality, but we end up with a wonderful product and uh, it looks professional and, um, you know, it's a great way to, to have your collections accessible and, and really looking sharp. And um, people are thrilled with it. Uh, and it's also, you know, in terms of the c- community project aspect, it's a wonderful way to get young people involved. Um, we, we've just had some incredible experiences with the whole intergener- intergenerational aspect um, of these projects, um, whether it's a big, huge school project or just involving a few students. Um, it, it's a great way, you know, we hear time and again from folks about how they worry about who's going to take over this history when we're gone. <laughs> you know, who, who, who's going to care about it when I'm not here? People really, really agonize over that. <laughs> so what you're doing is, is making sure that there's young people that will take over. Bill has a question for you or a comment. Yeah, sure. hi, Larissa, this is Bill Horner. Yeah. Uh, we, over the last couple of months, have uh, organized a group of uh, island folks who have either experience as writers of history or aspire to do so, and we find there's a substantial pool of them in this area. Uh, We call ourselves Friends of Island History, and uh, we're generating um, a mission statement which goes something like this. Uh, Friends promotes and facilitates the discovery, identification, cataloging, preservation, and provision of public access to archival resources of historical importance to Mount Desert Island and neighboring communities and encourages collegial dialogue among island historians. What we'd like to do is, of course, uh, given our labors in dealing with ancient microfiche machines, is to, as quickly as possible, digitize the microfilms of the local newspapers. Uh, How can we use your organization to bring this about? 
that's a good question. Newspapers have to, have we have we don't have a way right now to put newspapers on main memory. Uh, they don't they don't scan well. They don't present well. Um, they there's not an easy way. Um, main memory is set up to put a single a single item um, in the cataloging record. So it's either a photograph, a scan, a a, a digital image, uh, a digital digital photograph. Excuse me, of an artifact, an object. So a, an entire newspaper page doesn't doesn't work with 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 the with the record the way the the cataloging record works in main memory um and then you get into issues with secondary sources um you know if is a newspaper a primary a secondary source and all those kinds of quest- questions excuse me so we haven't we you haven't, haven't you haven't crossed done that newspapers. bridge yet yeah so that's okay. a that's a tough one so you're primarily dealing with uh, photographs <clears throat> no no if you go to main memory you'll see main memory is Photographs, um, diaries, journals, um, and we do with those. There is a presenting image. So when you go to the record for a diary or a journal, you see a picture, like the cover of it, and then you will have a PDF transcription of every single page. Mm-hmm. It'll show a picture of the page and then the transcription of the page. But that's an attached PDF. Uh, there's uh, objects, artifacts of many kinds, furniture, clothing, you know, all of that paintings. Um, so no, it's not just photographs at all. It's, it's all sorts of primary sources. I think what Bill is pointing to is something that we want to encourage is that more and more researchers are doing their work electronically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Definitely. that's, a, that's a, a resource that we'd like to get to. There's a lot of wonderful resources available online on places like Google Books or mm-hmm. Internet Archive, archive.org. That uh, provides some materials that you would say are quite obscure that you could never, you you would really have to travel a long way to get to a library if you discovered it. And mm. uh, I think one of the things that Bill and and the uh, collaborative group Friends of Island History have identified is really the the backbone of community life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 daily record or weekly record is the area newspaper, and that's something right. that we want to make available. Uh, through through the work of this group to facilitate mm-hmm. the work of historians. I think there's another point here. Um, time and time again, we've heard anecdotes of um, Mrs. Jones has just taken her first load of her grandfather's negatives to the dump. Yeah. And <clears throat> Mr. X has just happened to come into the house when the second load was about to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what we're trying to promote here uh, through the media is a consciousness of the fact that the family scrapbook, the letters in the attic, all of those things that are taking up space are potentially very, very important historical resources. Please don't throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Mm-hmm. Marissa, I'm going to let you go, but l- list your, your website one more time. Uh, uh- Either mainhistory.org or mainmemory.net. Main History is our Main Historical Society's primary website, and then mainmemory.net. I just could I just add one sure, last brief, thing briefly, I meant yeah. to say. Um, Blue Hill, I just wanted to say, was one of our main community heritage project sites 
last year and did a fabulous job. They had a huge community team and and was really wonderful. And I just... And, I and that's where you got that. some of the, the, the school students to be, participate. Um, wonderful. To do, right, right. They did a wonderful job. So Well, thanks so much for being with us uh, here on Talk of the Towns. Thank you very much for having me. Larissa Vigu-Picard of the Maine Historical Society. We've got a few more minutes, um, and we want to make sure if you've got a question or a comment um, or your own experience around celebrating local history, you get a chance as well. one 625-9378 or locally 469-0500 here on Talk of the Towns as we celebrate local history with Tim Garrity, director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko of the Abbey Museum and Bill Horner, a, pr- a semi-pro historian. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the ch- other challenges besides um, making sure that people don't throw out um, good things? What are some of the other challenges that you're feeling um, as, we, as we look at the next 20 years, next 50 years? years. Tim, start with you. Well, uh, what comes to mind is how often what we think we know turns out to be not so, (laughs) and how often what presents as something simple turns out to be more complicated, and uh, how much of our history has uh, little seeds of misinformation uh, in it. I'm, I'm thinking of an example of a Civil War soldier that I've been researching. His uh, uh, encountered him as a park ranger uh, in Mount Desert, and I was trying to identify someone who would have used the island's oldest road. We now call it Beach Hill Road. Mm. And I stopped by a uh, cemetery there, and in that cemetery, there's a tombstone that reads, John M. Gilly, Company D, 1st Maine Cavalry Regiment, fell at the Battle of the Wilderness, May 5th, 1864, age 45. And as I tried to identify him for visitors to Acadia National Park and try to draw him out, I discovered that so much of what's there, though it's written in stone, turns out to be not so. That, in (laughs) fact, uh, uh, he was a member of the 1st Maine Cavalry Regiment, but they never fought at the Battle of the Wilderness, that he actually died in prison in Richmond. And as you discover this, you find that that story is repeated over and over again, but it's possible to get to the bottom of it. So I don't know if that's a challenge or one of the interesting Mm. things about Mm. history is that you always have the opportunity to revisit. You almost always discover that the story is more complicated than you perceive. And sometimes the way we talk about history reflects more our present-day perspective than what really happened. Mm. And um, I, I don't know if that's a challenge, but I think it's one of the things that's fascinating about history is there's always more, more to learn. Well, I think uh, Cinnamon uh, Rainey's story last night is exactly that, um, how we used to think about how Native peoples used the coast of Maine and Mount Desert Island. We're finding out that wasn't the case. So that's certainly a challenge. Are there other challenges that you see? Um, certainly. there. I see a lot of technical challenges about the museum and collecting world. You know, History is recorded often on media that aren't permanent. You know, your newspapers are not built to last, that, mm-hmm. that paper. Mm-hmm. And so there's this daily challenge of how do you make something last forever when it, it actually can't. Mm-hmm. So the more we stay abreast of, of current um, technology, the digitization, all of those things are important. But yet there's this vast world of collections that just won't be digitized anytime soon. So to me, that's one of the great inherent internal challenges of museums is how do you take care of it forever? And then also, how do you know what to collect? I mean, you think about the things you keep personally in your life, Uh-oh. and everybody has a different <laughs> collecting strategy, or they don't collect at all. Right. And then how does a museum know 
how do they have a crystal ball to even know what to collect? To me, it can it can make you go crazy. It really can <laughs> if you think too hard on it. Fortunately, with the Abbey, we have a really well-defined scope, but then you get into the world of historical societies, especially for a, a county or a city or a state. Oh, my. I mean, mm-hmm. it is daunting. And I think a, a lot of visitors don't realize that so much thought goes into it so that, that the people coming behind us have the story. Mm-hmm. Bill, you identified a challenge or, or, or a ch- that I think was a challenge is, is the notion of collaboration, you know, bringing people together so that there is um, kind of a, a working together on these things. Say more about um, how you found it when you said, well, let's start to pull people together to do these things. Well, um, it is a challenge. I think it's based primarily on the fact of the complexity of our society that nothing turns out to be quite as simple as you thought it might be. Uh, part of my in- interest, current interest in history relates very closely to my interest when I was practicing medicine, and that is systems management. How do you provide sophisticated, timely trauma care, for example, over a wide geographical area. How do you, um, one of my experiences was in the uh, breast clinic in Bangor, and how do you bring uh, diagnostic um, uh, ability (coughs) together in a short period of time? Uh, Left to itself, any of these things, including historical resources, tend to distribute themselves horizontally, like lily pads in a pond, and so you have to kind of leap around from one to the other and hope that you're landing on the right one. Why not bring those lily pads together and stack them up vertically so that, in this case, (coughs) the history researcher can go in the top and sort of work down through this systematically arranged um, process and find much more time efficiency and accuracy and maybe correct some of this uh, errors of assumption in history. Mm. But all of this requires collaboration rather than competition. Mm. Mm. It requires a little bit of standardization rather than making up your own. It requires coming together and finding a common ground. And uh, that, to me, is, is the primary challenge. I have to say that based on our, our initial experiences with this friends group, the time is right. Mm, great. The time is really right. I, I think it holds great promise. Well, and you heard um, <coughs> Larissa from the, the Maine Historical Society say that one of the things that they're looking for is to help people come together, to collaborate in order to put a project together. And mm-hmm. I know that the foundations, the foundations world is looking at that. Tim, what do you, what do you sense well, of that? One of the things that we want to accomplish was celebrate 250, the 250, uh, commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the arrival of the European settlers on MDI is to fire people's curiosity and imagination and give them an idea of what the possibilities are and how they can participate in history and how what's in their attic uh, mm. can contribute or even how the present day will very soon be history so that some of the things we value most are commonplace things, uh, diaries or posters of the current movie or school photographs. We, we take photographs of uh, children today who are reenacting a one-room schoolhouse and mm. put them next to the school children who were there in 1909 and see how different they look and how alike they look. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but these are all commonplace things. Mm-hmm. You know, the mm-hmm. children, the nine-year-old on that day has uh, no sense that uh, someday people would be 
Curious. looking at his photograph with a mic uh, with a magnifying glass right. and I, I don't think we're we're aware of uh, uh, how important the present day can become history so that's one of the things we're trying to do with the island is preserve events of the, of the day that we think our followers will uh, appreciate someday so one last brief question because our time is running out is as you learn about and celebrate local history each of you um, what insights have you gained that might serve as guidance as we think about the future what, what, are you, what are you getting from history that says this is really going to be useful to us in the future? Cinnamon? Well, for me, what fires my personal love of history is the relevance to my life and mm-hmm. what keeps me moving forward. The stories of every person, the worker, the laborer, as well as the elite, is the egalitarian approach to history that is of the future. Mm-hmm. Bill? I think it's a sense of community uh, and the fact that there are issues and events that don't really change that much over over time, and history helps us to understand that and put it in context. Mm-hmm. Tim, I think it can a study of history can help us appreciate life more, uh, knowing what's been before. To be able to look at a, a landscape and understand how it's changed over time can just help us appreciate what's all around us. Mm. Well, thank you all for being with us this morning on Talk of the Towns. We've come to that time when I want to remind listeners that you, uh, this program is produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme Music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Tim Garrity of the main, um, excuse me, Mount Desert Island Historical Society, Cinnamon Catlin Legutko of the Abbey Museum, and Bill Horner, as we've said, a semi-pro historian, along with Larissa Vigu-Picard, who has joined us by phone from the Maine Historical Society. Thanks to those of you who um, listened. Um, you didn't call in today, but we'll expect you to call in at future programs. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Thank you.